0: Um, Micah chapter 4 this morning, please. Micah chapter 4. Um, I want to put a picture up here on the screen, and I don't know if any of you know who that is. That is one of America's heroes. His name is Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini. And the Laura Hildebrand. Uh, wrote a book about 2002 called Unbroken. They recently made a movie about it. left out some really important key parts uh, there, such as his uh, walk with the Lord. Uh, But um, uh, she did 75 interviews with this American hero. Louis, um, as a teenager and a young man, um, was an incredible athlete. And what he accomplished really catapulted him to national stardom. Uh, The nation knew who this guy was. Um, He was born in 1917 to Italian immigrants. Uh, If you hadn't figured that out from his last name, uh, Zamperini. But uh, he he was um, very talented. He had a a grit to him that overcame the poverty that he grew up in. he, even, he, he, he struggled with his behavior, but even was able to um, uh, get through that as he focused his, his um, discipline of work into sports. And he matured into the world's fastest high school miler ever. Um, he went on to compete as a world-class track athlete at the University of Southern California, USC, and he ran the 5,000-meter run for the United States in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. That would have been the Olympics that um, Jesse Owens was in and, and others there that the, uh, the Nazis uh, weren't happy about people of color uh, being in. And he ran in those Olympics. Um, and his horizons uh, seemed to be just wide open for potential as he looked forward to the next Olympics that would be scheduled, ironically, in Tokyo in 1940 and then Finland uh, when Tokyo withdrew. And then war was looming. It became obvious that war was going to break out. Those Olympics were canceled, and, and Louis was just kind of broken about that um, because he had set his, his dreams on those. Before the war began, the United States entered. The war had already begun, World War II, but before the United States entered, and in World War II in 1940, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps, but he really didn't cut it. He washed out. Uh, he rejoined in 1941, and he was on duty in Texas when Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor uh, triggered our entry into World War II. And his th- disappointments of the, what he wanted to achieve in the Olympics kind of would evaporate in the coming years. Because by the time Louis Zamperini was 28 years old, he had survived and endured such physical and mental and emotional torment and deprivation that the story of his survival almost seems impossible. He was a bombardier officer assigned to a B 24, and he saw a sporadic action in the Pacific. But on May 27th, 1943, he was aboard a B-24 and was having some mechanical problems. It launched from Oahu to search for a missing plane and its crew. The engine failure drove that airplane into the Pacific Ocean. Louis was among only three survivors who, who clung to two inflatable rafts. And it's an, that in itself is an amazing survival story of 47 days at sea where the three men and later two lived on literally, practically nothing. Drinking the little water they could from, from rain, uh, eating an occasional raw fish or bird. Um, sharks and enemy patrols, the Japanese, constant threats. They had abandoned one of the rafts when an enemy plane, shot it up. But they... They had those 47 days at sea. They rode ocean currents some 2,000 miles when they saw land. Well, there was a day of reckoning that arrived, and Louis and pilot Phil Phillips were taken prisoners. They paddled ashore to a Japanese occupied island in the Marshall Islands. They were transported to mainland Japan. And he remained a POW there in Japan until liberation two years later. When his captors Japanese captors who were not known for their kindness, learned who he was that he was Louis Zamperini, the world- class athlete, they singled him out for especially atrocious treatment. And one Japanese NCO known as the bird was particularly brutal and, and sadistic and They had to have something wrong upstairs. He would often focus his savagery and the bizarre things that he would do in his savagery on on, on Louis Zamperini. He was tormented, deprived. Uh, He and the fellow POWs being held at camp just had fading hopes. Um, Their survival instincts were beginning to to be diminished. Uh, Their rations were doing little to keep them out of starvation. Slave labor, the psychological um, uh, treatment, physical brutality that characterized many of those American captives in Japan wore down on them. Uh, Survivors would live with with haunting memories, permanent physical damage, sometimes permanent mental damage. And yet Lily and those there being held captive at that uh, prison camp somehow were able to retain their, their fighting spirit. Um, Things that they could celebrate as victories became very important to them And they defied the Japanese armies with whatever strength they could muster When the um, end of the war came And the Japanese military then decided that they were going to murder all American prisoners Before the invasion of the United States did happen to Louis and that camp there, and the war ended, and Z- Zamparini was able to be freed and return home a hero, a national hero. And you would think everything would be wonderful for Louis Zamparini, but God wasn't done with Louis, and he's going to put him through more breaking to change him, and I'll, I'll share a little bit more uh, later on here uh, at the end of the message, but in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, God was not done with Israel. In uh, and, and chapter 4, 1 through 8, that we saw last week, God gives amazing promises. And we saw last week the greatness of the kingdom, the greatness of the kingdom, uh, where uh, there would be a, 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 a kingdom that would be set up, that would be attractive to all the nations of the earth. The nations of the earth would be... uh, Micah pictures himself walking among the nations of the earth and just hearing, talking about this kingdom in Jerusalem that God would have. There were uh, supreme articles. There was the the law of God, the ways of God that would be governing this kingdom. Uh, There would be a peace treaty where the world would be at peace, an armistice. And there was an assurance that the Lord God had spoken this... Excuse me, in verse four, and it would occur. So there was a greatness to this kingdom. But there was also a goal to this kingdom. Goal to this kingdom. The goal was for people to, the nations of all the earth, to leave their idolatry to treasure Yahweh Jehovah as the one true God and live under His reign. The supreme abandonment of their false gods. Supreme affections for Yahweh. And a supreme awakening. God would take her that was driven out, her that was afflicted, those that were lame, and he would restore. He would restore them. And he would rule as the king over this kingdom. Now, in verses 9 through chapter 5, verse 1. It seems as though the sun that had been shining so brightly will now have a cloud pass over it for a bit in the text before it comes out again in chapter 5, verse 2. In chapter 4, verse 1 through 8, was like a, a cloudless day. Beauty. Kind of like we've had this week, this past week. Just beautiful, clear blue skies. What God would do in this kingdom. And then, there's a cloud that's going to pass over but chapter 5, verse 2 and on, the cloud's going to pass over. It's going to go through. It's going to be clear. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be bright again. So chapter 4, verse 9 through chapter 5, verse 1, uh, is a little backtracking here of what would happen before this kingdom. In chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. First thing I'd like us to see this morning And Micah chapter 4 and verse 9, and also um, chapter 5, verse 1, is the loss of the king, the loss of the king. Look what he says in 4 9. Now, why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pains have taken thee as a woman, and Travail. He says, why are you screaming in terror? Well, I, I, you don't have a king to lead you. You're, have your, your wise people have all died. You're, you're gripped with pain like a woman in childbirth. Um, he pictures that woman in childbirth with tremendous labor and pains. And so this nation that would uh, be be uh, destroyed by the foreign powers, carried away in exile, would, would cry aloud in panic and pain. They'd have no king or counselor. A king, you know, someone who, who you depended on to make decisions for leading your nation. A counselor would be gone. Now look what he says in chapter 5, verse 1 about their king again. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge. That's the word for king of Israel. A rod upon the cheek. Jerusalem will be besieged by the Babylonians. That happens in 2 Kings 25, verse 1. A city of troops would be a city surrounded by troops. And Micah calls them to, to marshal their troops, to, to gather their troops around. Of course, their defenses are going to be in vain because of Nebuchadnezzar's siege there. But Micah says that the ruler of Israel is going to be struck on the cheek with a rod. Struck on the cheek with a rod. Well, we have said this. Speaking of the Lord Jesus uh, I don't see that here because Jesus of course he was struck on the head and uh, um, but uh, there are several factors here that tell us that this is Israel 's king at that time the first part of verse one is talking about that Babylonian attack in Jerusalem that word uh, uh, ruler translated judge here um, is a is a word that um, Uh, is is not necessarily referring to Jesus Christ. And Christ was not smitten by the troops of an enemy nation while Jerusalem was besieged. But the Bible does tell us that the king of Judah at that time, Zedekiah, the last king, really, of of Israel, Zedekiah, um, was captured by Nebuchadnezzar in 2 Kings 25, verses 1-7. through And it tells us, because of Zedekiah's rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, that's, that Nebuchadnezzar took Zedekiah's sons. He killed them in front of Zedekiah's eyes. And then he put out Zedekiah's eyes. So that would be the last thing that Zedekiah ever saw. Perhaps that is what's referring to here. Uh, a soon coming event uh, as was written here in, um, in, to, to Israel from Micah. That would happen very shortly after. But there is a, there is a loss of a king. A loss of the king. He's saying, well, yeah. Okay, What's the big deal? It is a big deal to Israel who would base their hopes for uh, their future on a king. If you go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had promised that there would always be a king. There would always be a king from David's line upon the throne of Israel. In the Davidic covenant, covenant, the promise God made to David, Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 11 says this, And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, here is Nathan the prophet giving God's promise to David the king. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Now listen to these promises here. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now think of what Micah has said to Israel. Um, You do not have a king, do you? And your king has been struck on the cheek. That's That's a very shameful thing to be done to a king. You don't strike the king on the cheek. But that's, that's where the tables have turned. He uh, um, has now had to submit to the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Look what he says. Verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now what apparently Israel had forgotten was this promise here. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. The loss of a king was really a loss of hope to Israel in many ways. And God says, yes, here's the time. You have strayed from me, I will strike your king. It was a loss of hope. So that cloud that is passed before the sun here, uh, one of the parts of that cloud is the loss of a king. But not only that, if you go back with me to Micah chapter 4, there is the lament of the exiles. The lament of the exiles. Verse 10 says, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thy enemies. The Jews, they would be taken captive from their homeland. They would writhe in agony as a woman in labor pains. They could do nothing to stop that agony. They had to go through that experience, but it would be for a short time. There's no woman who has birthed a baby where the labor pains have been forever. There's a time... When it ends. And on the trek from their homeland, these exiles will be forced by their captors to camp in an open field. And God says, this is going to be done by Babylon. You might say, well, that's, that's interesting. I don't really know much about Babylon, but that's interesting. I'm you know, heard as a world power. What's amazing about that prophecy is this. It would be like in our day when we have world powers, you know, U.S. and Russia. It would be like a prophecy made in the United States um, that God would say, and in our minds we think, okay, um, if there's a world power that would take us over, perhaps it would be Russia, you know, a, a giant world power. And God says, you're going to be taken captive by Mexico. See, Babylon was very small at this time. It wasn't a threat. It would arise in power. But in Micah's time, Babylon was not the most powerful empire. It was Assyria. And Assyria does take um, the northern king of Israel. So it was a, it was, that's an amazing promise uh, and prophecy. So Babylon wasn't the most powerful empire. And, and for, for Micah to say that uh, you will be taken to Babylon. Because God was being very specific. You remember in one of the psalms it says, By the rivers of Babylon we wept. There's a lament there. The captivity. The punishment for their turning away from Yahweh to, to worship other gods. The idolatry, the, the rebellion, the breaking of God's laws um, that they were punished for. There would be a lament. There would be a, a darkening cloud. But thirdly, in verse 11-13, through 13, there is the lure of of the nations, the lure of the nations. <clears throat> What's really fun is fishing around here in Maine with very clear waters. And if you have a lure and you have polarized glasses, you can see sometimes the fish chasing your, your lure. You can see them chasing it. And um, I mean, you can almost tease them sometimes. And uh, it's, it, it, it's amazing to see that, uh, that fish chasing your lure. Um, we went um, striped bass fishing not too far from the Verrazano Bridge in New York off a little, little um, lighthouse that was kind of in the middle of the water there on a, on a rocky atoll. And um, we, were, we were using um, uh, strips of, of squid, um, sometimes strips of fluke, and uh, we would cast them out there with a the bait casting reel. And uh, then we just let the current drag it toward the rocks, the lighthouse. And so we pull out line and pull out line and pull out line. And um, I, I remember having a strike on my, on my line there. And I, and, I, and I waited six seconds before I set the hook like I was supposed to. And, uh, and it got off. And then ten seconds later, my sister-in-law right next to me, um, she gets a bite. And she, I think it was the same fish that I had. It had to be the same fish. She pulls it in. She pulls it all the way in. It was too small to keep. She did have a couple keepers. Um, but, but I thought about that here. Um, we, were, we were feeding things to that fish. We were, we were chumming and chunking, chopping up fish and throwing them in the, to, to, to you know, get their appetites going. Um, but what is pictured here in verses 11 through 13 is God is just leading the nations on. Here's what's happened. The nations of the world, think they are going to uh, stand against God's people. They're going to gather against Israel, against Jerusalem, Zion. They're going to camp around. They're going to destroy, in their minds, Israel. They're going to unite against Jerusalem and try to conquer it. They're going to long to defile her by destroying her. But they're going to be ignorant that they're playing right in the God's hands. That they're just following the Lord. That they are going to be devastated like sheaves of grain being broken up when threshed on a threshing floor. I think of what Psalm 1 says about the wicked. It'll be like the chaff, the shell, the husk of the grain that the wind drives away when you're winnowing. Now Micah didn't say when this, was, when this would occur. <coughs> but he says in verse 11, Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled. Let our eye look upon Zion. You ever notice how many nations want Israel? They want Jerusalem. You think of the Crusades and and, uh, today. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord. Neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as a sheaves on the floor. They have these high and mighty plans, and God has already got it all in control. All set. They're playing into his hand, so to speak. Have you ever played chess against somebody who really knew what they were doing? They could think 20 moves ahead. I think maybe you know three or four moves ahead. They could think 20 moves ahead. And so you do this, and like they're like, okay. They're thinking, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and then back them over here. They got it all planned out, 20 moves ahead. And you can make your move, right? But it doesn't affect their plan because they already have something that's going to counteract that down the road and take care of that threat that you made. And God is the master chess player here. He's more than a chess player. He's got it in control here. But here's the idea. The daughter of Zion, the people of Jerusalem, um, uh, would be uh, encamped against by the nations. And God's going to fight on Israel's behalf against them. Verse 13 says, Arise and thresh. Thresh is, is uh, he's cutting down the wheat, it's winnowing it. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people. He's he's, he's picturing uh, uh, Israel as as a as a horse. Uh, Israel as it, as perhaps the, even an oxen that would that would that would step on the corn and thresh it and he's saying I'm gonna make I'm gonna I'm not gonna put horseshoes on you I'm gonna make your whole hoof iron I'm gonna make your your, your horns uh, uh, iron your hoofs brass and you're gonna step on that grain those nations that have been camped around you're gonna thresh those nations you will I will fight on your behalf against you and perhaps he's. Referring to what's written about in the book of Revelation, verse 16. When all the nations are gathered against Israel in that valley of Megiddo, Revelation 16, that sixth vial the angel pours out, 16 verses 12 through 21. And then the seventh vial and verse 17 says, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. There was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided, into the three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. The plague thereof was exceeding great. Perhaps that is what he's talking about there. They intended to defile, to pollute Jerusalem, and God is going to trample them. They'll be devastated. And the the nations that are enemies of both God and His people, in verse 12, they don't understand that God's in control of everything. He's carrying out His sovereign purpose, His plan, His will, including even the siege of Jerusalem, and they are pawns in His hands. He's going to gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. God is the harvester. Jerusalem is the beast treading on the sheaves. These attackers that are bent on the conquest of Jerusalem would themselves be vanquished. So he gets a promise here, doesn't he? It's not just all a cloud. The cloud is the nations what it can. The sun that will shine through the clouds is God will not allow them to achieve their purposes. there is the lure of the nations. And fourthly, though, there is the love of the king. The love of the king. If you go look with me again, chapter 4, verse 10, it says, There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord, Yahweh, shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. And chapter 5 and Verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth had been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that we, she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return of the children of Israel. That travail, that agony, it will deliver something. Here's what it will deliver. In this ruler, chapter 5, verse 2, verse 4 says, He shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. There's a promise there that Israel would be rescued. Israel would be redeemed by the covenant God who cares for
1: this captivity, the exile, would be necessary
0: because God did promise he would cast them out of the land. He the, the possession of the land, the possession of the land, he promised them, but he didn't always promise them occupation of it. He didn't say you can just occupy the land, and everything's going to be good. He said you're going to be taken from the land if you're disobedient. Captivity was necessary because he had to keep his promise. They didn't obey him. The exile was really a proof of God's integrity, wasn't it? But even though the people of Judah would be exiled, the Lord's going to rescue them. He's going to redeem them from the Babylonian captivity. And that's what He does in Isaiah 41, that promise. And so deliverance would come in Babylon. In Babylon, notice Babylon's repeated again. And the word there for redeem at the end of chapter 10 is the word... Go out, go out. It's a word that we saw a few Sunday nights ago in the book of Ruth. It's Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. It means the one who buys back, who restores relationship, and that's Yahweh. He's the perfect family protector. He's their father. He's their husband. He redeems their property. He gathers into their land. He redeems their freedom. He avenges them against their tormentors. He secures their posterity for the future. Of course, we know that ultimately that Redeemer is Jesus. People brought from distress, bondage, to an even greater deliverance. He's a great king. You see the love of the king for his people. There's a remnant. He's going to gather them. He's going to be exalted as their king again. They thought the kingdom was gone. Zedekiah, their last king. Empty thrones, ruined palaces. But out of a little town in Bethlehem, he's going to raise up a ruler. Because of his love. He's saying, well, what does all this have to do with me? I'm not Israel. I want to tell you that God weaves Stories. And I should say, God weaves stories to be part of one story. His story. I don't know what you're going through or what you're facing, but I want to tell you that God is not done. He's not done. What He promises for Israel will happen. And He uses the evil as that dark background to make His story more beautiful. Beautiful. Things that have occurred to you, things that people have done to you, things that you have done, not, not outside of his plan. These nations were playing into his hand. They're all part of the plan. You think of the things that were done against Joseph, right? Genesis 37 through 50, Joseph, horrible things. Joseph could say, what is happening in my circumstances? And God was very interested and he was very active in using Joseph's circumstances as a part of his greater picture. And God uses the ups and downs in Joseph's life to work out somebody who would be the Savior of Israel in the sense that Israel would not be wiped out by famine. God puts Joseph in that place in Egypt so that Israel and Jacob's brothers and his family would have something to eat. Because there would be a Redeemer that would come through that nation. You think of the things that went on in Paul's life. Last night in our family devotions, we were um, uh, talking about the end of Acts and Paul. He's in, he's in house arrest. And Acts kind of leaves it just wide open in Acts 28. You know, like there's more to be done. There's more to be done. And it says, Paul is, Paul's under house arrest. He's appealing to Caesar as a Roman citizen. He's appealing to Caesar, but there are people who are able to come to him, and he proclaims, the Bible says, the kingdom of God. When you read the book of Philippians, you're told that there are people who are part of the praetorium, part of the secret service of Caesar, who had heard the gospel because of Paul being uh, connected to Paul in prison. Perhaps they were guarding him. Not, nothing outside of his plan. And then the Bible is full of stories like this people who think they were in the depths of despair, and God works out good in the end. The story of Job. He works out good in the end. I want to tell you that in all the circumstances of your life, based on Romans 8, I can tell you that God has, listen, transformative purposes in them. Transformative purposes in them. What do you mean by that? God is ultimately not concerned you know, I don't I don't want you to misinterpret me. Is not, his primary focus is not simply changing your circumstances. His primary focus is changing you in His holiness. And the good in Romans 8.28 that we quote and say, all things work together for good, is defined in the very next verse, chapter 8, verse 29, being conformed to the image of His Son. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 4, I've learned how to abound, and I've learned how to not have so much. I've learned in all things to be content. I can do all things through the strength of Christ. God works out good in the end. He has transformative purposes in what He sends down your path. And and I want you to think this morning, what about your story? What about your life? Have you faced, or are you facing right now that is like the cloud that is gone before the sun? And from our passage, can you think and say, if God would do this for Israel, can you be trusted in my circumstances as His child? Friends, in Romans 8, He says, if He gives us His most treasured possession... His son on a cross to be slaughtered in our place. And he heaps on us all his riches. Does that not mean we can trust him for our future? For our right now? Disease, sickness, cancer. Marriage, lack of responsiveness in a spouse. Lack of spiritual interest, perhaps a lack of work, unexpected bills, a wayward child that weighs heavily on your soul, a difficult relationship you're faced with. And all these things there's hope because God is working transformative purposes in your life. That's what he was doing with Israel. Hasn't all been done yet. It's what he's doing in our lives. Our lives are just one part, one thread of that tapestry he's weaving. I want to finish the story about Louis Zamperini and illustrate this, this thought here. Soon after he came back from World War II, he married a beautiful blonde lady named Cynthia. They had one child. You look at them and say, here's a war hero. He's gone through some very difficult things. Married a family now. And on the outside, everything seemed well. He could not get over his hatred for some of his captors in Japan. It was like a cancer that metastasized. And here is a man who thought that his only hope lay in murdering the man, the bird cause him so much trouble his life began to spiral downward he gave himself over to drunkenness and reckless behavior uh, he had invested money in quick uh, get rich quick schemes and they had, they had floundered um, he had friends that tried to intervene in his life and he made no reform his wife says we're going to divorce I'm going to take our child with us um the scars he had, he couldn't find healing. He fought with his wife constantly. He even abused her physically um, during one nightmare he was having at night. He imagined himself killing his evil captor, and it was his wife next to him in bed. In September 1949, so four years. Coming back to me and in four years. His life had quickly spiraled down. A young Billy Graham came to Los Angeles for a three-week campaign. (coughs) I think it was one of his very first campaigns, if not the first. Um, And his wife, Cynthia, attended. And she accepted Christ. And she goes home and she tells Louie of her new life in Christ. And she says, "I I no longer want a divorce. I'm going to work through this. And Louis, he's like, he's relieved. Uh, but he does not want whatever she has. She has She invites him to come the one night of the meetings. And he does. And he's indignant at the first night. Something is going on in his heart. He comes back another night. And that night he accepts Jesus Christ. And here's, here's his story. He says, quote. I dropped to my knees and for the first time in my life truly humbled myself before the Lord. I asked him to forgive me for not having kept the promises I would made during the war and for my sinful life. I made no excuses. I did not rationalize. I did not blame. <coughs> he had said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I took him at his word, begged for his pardon, and asked Jesus to come into my life. Billy Graham in his biography, actually, an autobiography, actually talks about this. He says, um, although he was a famous athlete in war, here he came home feeling happy, disillusioned, and broken in spirit. One night, he wandered into our tent in Los Angeles, with, Los Angeles with his wife and accepted Christ. His life was transformed. Not everything was wonderful and rosy after he accepted Christ, but joy had replaced the anger in Louis' heart. And he was able to freely forgive his captors. In fact, he goes back to Japan. Tells them that. The ones he can find. He gives testimony of Christ through his life. He works with troubled youth near his home in L.A. And he's a faithful husband to Cynthia until she dies in 2001 of cancer. And he died earlier in 2014 at the age of ninety-seven. Um depictions of his life don't share that part of it. They actually leave out really a lot of his struggle and brokenness. Here's a life. I had a dark cloud pass in front of him. A bright future, right, with sports and his accomplishments. Dark cloud. Then the breath of God's grace blows that cloud away. God shines His grace in Louis's life and changes him. Have you thought about the things in your life as God intending for transformative purposes? There comes a point where you have to come to the cross. See what Jesus did for me there and embrace that. So, if God could do to His Son at the cross for the purpose of changing you what He did, I think you can say by God's power, I can change. I can see the providence of God, I can see the love of God. I can see the smile of God behind the cloud.